0: April 6, 1970. A group of French journalists in a white van sped down a shimmering strip of asphalt in southeastern Cambodia.
1: Behind them lay the village of Chifo, or what was left of it. A few days before, Viet Cong insurgents had ransacked much of the town. The large group of correspondents, escorted by soldiers, had come to document
0: the destruction but then they got word that three from their group had been captured by guerrilla forces east of the village. Two American photojournalists named Sean Flynn and Dana Stone had already gone out to investigate, but they weren't back yet.
1: So the French correspondents went to see what had happened. They hoped that any minute they'd catch up to Flynn and Stone and transport them back
0: to safety if necessary. The driver slammed the brakes. Up ahead, an American rode toward them on a bright red Honda motorcycle, Flynn. He was dressed in shorts and flip-flops and was waving at them to turn around. One of the French
1: reporters got out of the van and talked with Flynn while the other Frenchman filmed the encounter. About 100 yards ahead, a white car was pulled sideways across the narrow road with its hood up.
0: Flynn told the reporter that enemy soldiers had them surrounded and they needed to get out immediately.
1: The Frenchmen didn't need to be told twice. They got in their van and headed back toward the village. Flynn followed them on his motorcycle part of the way before turning around and returning to the broken down car.
0: Neither he nor his partner, Dana Stone, were ever seen again.
1: Welcome to Gone, a ParCast
0: original. I'm Molly. And I'm Richard. Every other Monday, we examine mysterious disappearances and the theories they spawned. From the Amber Room to Michael Rockefeller, Picasso paintings to the Etruscan language, the Roanoke colony to the lost Russian cosmonauts. If it's gone, we're looking for it. You can find all episodes of Gone and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Gone for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Gone in the search bar.
1: At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast
0: Network. Today we're exploring the disappearance of Vietnam War photographers Sean Flynn and Dana Stone. They vanished while on assignment in war-torn Cambodia in 1970. Despite numerous efforts to find out what happened over the last half century, their ultimate fate remains a mystery.
1: American involvement in Vietnam began in the 1950s and continued until 1975,
0: Hundreds of photojournalists journeyed to the region to document the war. Among them were 28-year-old Sean Flynn and 30-year-old Dana Stone. The pair became well-known for their willingness to put life and limb at risk to get a good shot.
1: That's exactly what they were doing on the afternoon of April 6, 1970, when they investigated a Viet Cong checkpoint in eastern Cambodia. After Flynn warned off a van full of French journalists, the two men were never
0: seen again. It's widely accepted that Flynn and Stone died as prisoners of war. But today, we'll discuss different theories about how they were captured and what happened to them afterward.
1: Nothing in Sean Flynn's upbringing suggested he'd later become a war photographer. Born on May 31st, 1941, in Los Angeles, California, he was the only son of the swashbuckling movie star Errol Flynn.
0: Despite being born at the height of his father's fame, Flynn didn't grow up surrounded by celebrities and the gleaming lights of Hollywood. His parents' relationship was often violent. One incident landed both of them in the hospital. They divorced when Flynn was just a baby.
1: His mother, French movie star Lily DeMita, had quit acting after marrying Errol. Following their divorce, she took young Sean and moved to Florida.
0: Flynn grew up largely isolated from his famous father. When he did see him, it often involved traveling to Errol's villa in Jamaica or sailing to and from Europe on his yacht.
1: But glamorous travel couldn't replace a real emotional bond, and their relationship was strained. In his autobiography, Errol got his son's birthday wrong. Sean once said, I never saw any of my father's movies. His name means nothing to me. I'm not particularly proud of it.
0: Sean Flynn was only 18 years old when his father died suddenly in 1959. But Errol's shadow loomed for the rest of his life. Six foot three, with a strong jaw and a thatch of wavy blonde hair, Sean Flynn inherited his father's dashing good looks. Like many celebrities' children, he struggled to find a separate identity for himself.
1: Flynn attended Duke University for a brief time in 1959 and 60, but then quit school to follow in his father's footsteps and become an actor. He got his first part in 1960, then his first leading role in 1962's The Son of Captain Blood. It was a sequel to one of Errol's most famous films.
0: For the next few years, he made a number of B-movies in Europe while developing an appetite for drugs, partying, and risk-taking. He later said, I'm what you might call a hedonist, a young man specializing in pleasure.
1: But he soon realized that despite looking just like his father, he didn't have Errol's on-screen charisma. Even worse, Sean thought acting was boring. He wanted something more exciting
0: in his life. So he tried his hand at becoming a professional hunter. He hunted big game in Africa in the past, and in 1965, he traveled to Kenya and took a job as a safari guide. While there, he began training for an official license.
1: But, like his attempts at a college degree and a movie career, he quickly lost interest in safari work. Instead, he wanted to do something that mattered. With the war in Vietnam heating up, Flynn decided to travel there to become a news photographer.
0: He'd never taken a picture in his life, but he was able to use his connections to get hired as a photojournalist by the French news magazine Paris Match. They agreed to work with him as long as he paid his own way.
1: Errol Flynn had played war heroes, but he'd never actually been in a war zone. His son was determined to outdo him and get out from under his shadow in the process.
0: Sean Flynn arrived in Saigon, the South Vietnamese capital at the time, on January 26, 1966. It was just a few months shy of his 25th birthday. He carried an expensive Leica camera he'd bought second-hand in Spain a few months earlier. When veteran journalists
1: heard Flynn was part of the press pool, they rolled their eyes and wrote it off as a publicity stunt.
0: They believed he was just there to play soldier. Flynn got word of what they were saying, and he was reportedly furious. Though he knew he'd only been given his press credentials because he was Errol Flynn's son, He was determined to prove that he deserved the job.
1: And he wasted no time in following through on his goal. Within weeks, a helicopter dropped Flynn into the middle of a firefight. During the battle, he took numerous combat pictures and learned what it was like to face bullets.
0: In March, Flynn was wounded by shrapnel. When a doctor later told him he needed surgery that would put him out of commission for at least two months, he refused. Instead, he rested for a few weeks and then went back to where the action was.
1: While recuperating, he befriended a special forces sergeant who was with the Green Berets. The sergeant invited Flynn to come along on a dangerous mission in contested territory. Flynn essentially became a member of the unit carrying grenades and a machine gun, which he was forced to use on
0: several occasions. During the operation in April, he took pictures of American soldiers torturing prisoners. When he later submitted them with a brief article, they were picked up by United Press International, one of the major newswire services. The story and its accompanying photos were broadcast all across the world.
1: After that, the eye-rolls and snide remarks from other journalists disappeared. Flynn had proved his
0: mettle. In April 1966, about the same time that Flynn was embedded with the Green Berets, photojournalist Dana Stone arrived in Saigon.
1: Stone was the opposite of Flynn in just about every way. Where Flynn had Hollywood good looks and the tall, suntan physique of a surfer, Stone was short and stocky, with wire-rimmed glasses, freckles, and a dimpled chin.
0: Two years older than Flynn, Stone had spent some time in the Navy in 1961. But he found he wasn't cut out for big ships. He was so chronically seasick that the Navy discharged him after just a year. He
1: worked odd jobs for a while and eventually made his way to San Francisco. Despite his continued seasickness, He loved sailing and couldn't stay away from the water. In 1965, he found work on a ship that transported troops to and from Vietnam.
0: Always busy and full of energy, 26 year old Stone would go ashore to take pictures whenever his ship docked abroad. Once he was back home in California,
1: he'd have them developed. At the time, Stone was shocked at the lack of press coverage for the growing conflict in Vietnam. It soon dawned on him that he could document the war himself and be paid to do it. His aunt had given him some money, so he bought a high-quality camera. And in the spring of 1966, Stone flew to Saigon.
0: Once there, he went to the office of United Press International and talked them into hiring him as a freelance photographer. He soon met and befriended the local members of the press corps and got to know Sean Flynn. The two hit it off quickly
1: and became frequent collaborators. They were part of a small group of photojournalists who had a reputation for tenacity and risk-taking. The two men had no fear of entering combat to document the realities of the war.
0: Both Flynn and Stone eventually had pictures published in magazines and newspapers across the world. Flynn shot videos that were featured on CBS Nightly News, while some of Stone's clips were used in a documentary that won a Peabody Award and an Emmy. Stone even had a picture featured on the
1: cover of Time magazine in October 1967. In an era when news magazines were still widely read by the American public, it was a huge honor. He later said, it was about the biggest thing that's ever
0: happened to me. By the time 1970 rolled around, Flynn and Stone were both veteran war photographers with numerous credits to their names. Then, early that year, the political situation in Cambodia began to deteriorate. Situated along the southwest border of Vietnam,
1: Cambodia had a fragile government led by a hereditary monarch. But following a military coup in March 1970... Communist forces from Vietnam began to swarm across the border.
0: As word spread, journalists and reporters headed into the capital, Phnom Penh, to document the situation. Among them were Sean Flynn and Dana Stone. It would be the last journey either man ever made. Coming up, we'll explore Flynn and Stone's disappearance, then examine the theories about what happened to them. Now, back to the story.
1: Sean Flynn and Dana Stone were polar opposites. But they shared a passion for exposing the truth during the Vietnam War. And both were willing to go to extreme lengths to get their stories. By 1966, they were established figures in the International Press Corps.
0: But by the late 1960s, the Vietnam War wasn't selling papers like it used to. Flynn briefly traveled to Bali in Indonesia, while Stone spent a year in Europe with his wife Louise. They'd gotten married two years earlier. But soon, a coup in Cambodia brought them both back to the front lines. In
1: 1970, the new Cambodian leader, a former general named Lon Nol, tried to stomp out communist activity— in response, Viet Cong forces spilled across the border to support their Cambodian counterparts.
0: 30-year-old Dana Stone arrived in the Cambodian capital, Phnom Penh, at the end of March, just days after the coup. He took a room at the Hotel Royale, a fashionable spot for journalists in a town that was still unmarked by war. 28-year-old Sean Flynn arrived a week later and moved in with him. Stone's wife, Louise, arrived a few days after that. In
1: addition to documenting the fighting, Flynn and Stone hoped to learn more about the communist insurgents in the region. The Viet Cong was well known from their activity in South Vietnam, but their counterparts in Cambodia were more obscure. Called the Khmer Rouge, no one outside the country really knew anything about them.
0: But Flynn and Stone were also keeping tabs on their own government. U.S. officials had denied for months that they were bombing Cambodia. But Flynn, Stone, and other reporters suspected they were lying.
1: Flynn got confirmation soon after he entered the country. On April 3rd, he and Time journalist Bert Pines drove eastward out of Phnom Penh toward the Vietnamese border. There, they got a shock. U.S. planes were bombing the Cambodian countryside with impunity.
0: Flynn didn't have a video camera with him, but he took numerous still shots of the bombers. When he submitted them to Time, however, they were rejected. The editors argued that it was impossible to prove from images alone that the planes were actually over Cambodia.
1: Flynn was disappointed, but he wasn't easily deterred. He was more determined than ever to get the big scoop he was looking for. And he felt certain the place to find it was in the countryside east of Phnom Penh, near the border.
0: The day after Flynn witnessed the bombers over Cambodia, he and Stone rented two red Honda motorcycles. They intended to ride down to the border towns and spend a few days there.
1: Not wanting to be mistaken for soldiers or CIA operatives, They packed lightly and dressed casually. Flynn opted for shorts and flip-flops, while Stone wore khaki pants and hiking boots. They carried food and a few personal items in small knapsacks.
0: Stone kissed his wife Louise and jokingly promised her that he was too ugly to be captured. Then he and Flynn headed east out of Phnom Penh. It was around noon on April 5th, 1970.
1: It's not known what the pair did that day after leaving town or where they spent the night. But the following day, Monday, April 6th, they arrived in the Cambodian village of Chifo, about 10 miles from the Vietnamese border. It was in an area known as the parrot's beak because it cut sharply into Vietnam.
0: Several days earlier, communist forces had raided the village, burning down a school and police station and destroying a local military barracks.
1: Despite the fact that the Cambodian military had retaken the town, the Viet Cong still controlled much of the surrounding area. The communists were believed to have some 10,000 troops in the Parrots Beak region.
0: But in an effort to demonstrate that the new government was in control, Officials in Phnom Penh escorted a group of journalists to the area. Stone and Flynn joined the rest of their colleagues in Chifo.
1: During the tour, word came through that two Japanese TV reporters and a French cameraman had been captured at a communist roadblock about two miles east of the village. Flynn and Stone immediately
0: went to check it out. From a hill on the outskirts of town, they could see the trio's white dodge about two miles away, pulled sideways across the narrow strip of pavement. The hood was up, and it was riddled with bullet holes.
1: Unable to get photographs from such a distance, they returned to the village, where a press briefing was now in full swing. After it ended, many of the reporters left to make the three-hour journey back to Phnom Penh.
0: Lingering behind in Chifo, Flynn and Stone went to a cafe to drink afternoon tea and discuss how they wanted to proceed. No one knows exactly what they talked about, but other reporters in the cafe later testified that Flynn seemed to be trying to talk Stone into heading all the way out to the roadblock.
1: Stone resisted, reminding Flynn that he had a wife waiting for him back in Phnom Penh. Flynn responded, of course
0: it's dangerous,
1: but that's what makes it a good story.
0: Their conversation was lighthearted. At one point, Stone turned to the reporter at the neighboring table and said, this guy wants to get us captured.
1: They soon left the café, but before they rode off, another photographer took a picture of the photojournalists on their red Honda motorcycles. Both men wore floppy, wide-brimmed jungle hats, with their cameras slung cavalierly around their necks. Flynn's hair was longer than during his acting days, and he had heavy sideburns and a mustache.
0: It was the last photo ever taken of them.
1: Stephen Bell, the photographer who snapped the picture, said Dana Stone and Sean Flynn were straight out of Easy Rider, riding around on motorcycles carrying pearl-handled pistols. Cowboys, really.
0: Really? The road they drove down had pockets of Cambodian soldiers camped out along it. Guards at a command post told reporter Dan Sutherland that friendly soldiers were sweeping the areas around town, but they had no intention of going out to the Viet Cong roadblock.
1: While Sutherland was talking to the guards, his partner, Woody Dickerman, walked up the road. He could see Flynn and Stone up ahead by the white car in the middle of the road.
0: He didn't sense any danger because there were no communist troops anywhere in sight. It was a bright, sunny afternoon, and he took pictures of the smiling Cambodian soldiers as they passed him.
1: Suddenly, Sutherland drove up in their rented Mercedes and yelled at him to get back in the car. He told him there were Viet Cong soldiers everywhere.
0: All Dickerman could see were Flynn and Stone up ahead and Cambodian peasants working the fields. He felt torn about what he should do, but since this was his only ride back to Phnom Penh, he finally shrugged and got in the car.
1: A few minutes later, a van carrying French correspondence came up the road and encountered Flynn on his motorcycle. They turned their cameras on when they saw him. In their footage, Flynn yelled that Viet Cong soldiers were
0: nearby. Urging them to turn back, Flynn said that insurgents had the area surrounded and that one of their sentries had noticed the arrival of the Frenchmen. Flynn said he'd seen the sentry run off to some nearby homes where presumably more insurgents were hiding.
1: As the French reporters left, they saw about 15 communist soldiers bent low to the ground, running to take defensive positions. Flynn accompanied the Frenchman part of the way back to Chifo, but then, for reasons that are still unknown, he turned around and headed back to the roadblock.
0: That night, communist forces retook Chifo and the surrounding area. Flynn and Stone were never seen again. When Stone's wife
1: Louise first heard that the area had been overrun, she wasn't worried. Stone had been in dangerous situations before and had always managed to find his way out. Besides, he and Flynn had planned on being gone for several days, so she wasn't expecting him back yet anyway.
0: But her friends were more cautious. They convinced her that since there was a chance her husband and Flynn had been captured, she should try to let the communists know they were non-combatant photojournalists.
1: So she wrote letters saying as much, and used her contacts in the military to deliver them to the Khmer Rouge, the Viet Cong, and the North Vietnamese. She also reached out to Russian and Chinese officials, since they both backed the communist efforts in Southeast Asia.
0: But Louise Stone was only one civilian looking for answers, and she was lost in a sea of requests. The same week Flynn and Stone went missing, at least seven other Western journalists disappeared from the same area, including the three men whose car was seen at the roadblock outside Chifo. And communist officials couldn't find answers for anyone. As the days turned
1: into weeks and she got no response, Louise expanded her efforts. She got in touch with organizations in the U.S. who were able to send delegates into occupied areas. They inquired about her husband and Flynn.
0: The North Vietnamese insisted they held no foreign journalists of any kind, but they acknowledged that the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia might. Still, they claimed to have no information on who those journalists might be or where they were.
1: In the early summer of 1970, Louise contacted and eventually befriended Norodom Sihanouk, the ousted former king of Cambodia. After having been removed from office in the March 1970 military coup, he had thrown his support behind the Khmer Rouge in its fight against the
0: new U.S. supported government. Despite his many contacts within the Khmer Rouge and Viet Cong, Sihanouk was ultimately unable to provide Louise with any information.
1: But all hope was not lost. Journalists kept disappearing. So a committee was formed in the U.S. to oversee efforts to have them returned. It was headed up by Walter Cronkite, prominent anchor of the CBS Evening News.
0: In the summer of 1970, the committee sent an investigator from Army Intelligence named Zalin Grant into the area to interview people. Grant verified that Flynn and Stone had been captured by the Viet Cong forces and eventually turned over to the Khmer Rouge. According to his sources, a group of journalists was being held in a camp near the town of Krati, which sat north along the Mekong River. The camp was allegedly a series
1: of tin-roofed buildings enclosed by barbed wire fences. It was manned by about 200 soldiers. According to eyewitness reports, The prisoners were fed three times a day and were in reasonably good health.
0: No one was able to say for certain that Flynn and Stone were among the journalists in the camp. But one defector from the Khmer Rouge testified that he'd seen a man who looked like Sean Flynn there on May 31st, just a few months after he and Stone disappeared.
1: A group of prisoners had been brought to a house in the camp, Guards said they were journalists who'd been captured in April along Highway 1, the road where Flynn, Stone, and the others had
0: vanished. According to the defector, one of the men was tall, with blonde hair and a mustache. He also had long sideburns and hair down to his collar. The description fit Flynn perfectly. The man also testified that he'd seen some guards riding two red Honda motorcycles.
1: But despite these leads and potential sightings, Flynn and Stone never returned. In the months and years that followed their capture, more than 30 journalists went missing. Some of them were eventually released, but they were unable to provide any help on the whereabouts or condition of Flynn and Stone.
0: It was as if they disappeared without a trace. Coming up,
1: We'll explore the theories of what happened to Sean Flynn and Dana Stone and the subsequent search for their remains.
0: Now back to the story.
1: In early April, 1970, 28-year-old Sean Flynn and 30-year-old Dana Stone attended a press tour in Chifo, Cambodia. They were last seen inspecting a Viet Cong roadblock about two miles outside of town. That night, the whole area was taken over by communist insurgents. While Stone and Flynn are largely believed to have been taken prisoner, that theory has never been confirmed, and their remains have never been uncovered.
0: Over the years, there's been a lot of speculation about what the journalists were up to on the afternoon when they were captured. Many people believe they were simply trying to get a good scoop.
1: The men had a history of putting themselves at risk to get the perfect shot, but this time they pushed it a little too far. They were captured and shuffled off to a prison camp.
0: Others, however, think there was more to it than that. They believed that Flynn and Stone were trying to get taken prisoner. They wanted to get behind enemy lines and document what they experienced there
1: that theory isn't as outlandish as it sounds. In the years prior to Stone and Flynn's disappearance, several journalists had been captured by communist forces, then released a short time later. They'd returned home with front-page stories.
0: One of these was French model-turned-journalist Michelle Ray, who knew both Flynn and Stone. In January 1967, she was traveling by car across South Vietnam documenting her journey. When she stopped to change a flat tire, she was captured by the Viet Cong. A few weeks later,
1: Michelle Ray was released unharmed. Her experience made the front pages in her native France and was later depicted in a documentary. She also wrote a book about the adventure. Many of her colleagues were jealous. Getting such a story was the scoop of a lifetime.
0: Notably, Ray's boyfriend was Zalin Grant, the Army intelligence investigator who went to Vietnam to search for Flynn and Stone in 1970. According to Grant, Flynn was envious of her experience. He later wrote, Sean Flynn talked to me admiringly many times about how Michelle had gotten away with it.
1: And capture may not have seemed as risky as it sounds. Though the Viet Cong could be ruthless, they typically limited their atrocities to military personnel. They preferred to use journalists as propaganda tools. Michelle Ray, in fact, had been treated so well, she returned from her imprisonment with sympathy for the Viet Cong's cause.
0: Since little to nothing was known of the Khmer Rouge in 1970, it was natural to assume they would act the same way. But they would eventually become even more notorious than the Viet Cong.
1: Once they took over Cambodia in 1975, their leaders embarked on a horrific spree of genocidal terror. Estimates suggest that as many as 2 million Cambodians died between 1975 and 1979. That was roughly 25% of the population. And the Khmer Rouge didn't differentiate between military personnel and civilians. They considered all Americans their enemies and had no concern for international law.
0: But in 1970, no one knew any of this. So, journalists were eager to get the scoop on the Khmer Rouge. It's why Flynn and Stone had traveled to Cambodia in the first place. And maybe they recklessly and intentionally put themselves in a situation to be captured. The theory might be bolstered by an
1: eyewitness account, It's widely believed that the French camera crew that Flynn warned away from the roadblock were the last Westerners to see him alive. But New York Times reporter Henry Calm claimed to have seen both Sean Flynn and Dana Stone after that.
0: According to Calm's account, he came across Flynn and Stone in Chifo, and they were both dressed in military fatigues. They told him they'd already been out to the roadblock twice but were unable to get pictures. Their intention was to go a third time and try to talk with the insurgents. When kam warned them to be careful, they laughed it off. If this account is accurate, it lends
1: credence to the notion that they were, in fact, trying to get captured. Wearing military fatigues would have made them look like American soldiers and thus
0: obvious targets. But Calm's story is difficult to fit into place with the other eyewitness accounts. The pair had packed light for their journey into the border region. Where would they have stowed military fatigues? And multiple photographs and videos prove that Flynn was in shorts and Stone was in khakis that day.
1: Furthermore, no one else claimed to have seen them in military fatigues or making three trips out to the roadblock. Instead, it seems probable that Calm got his facts mixed up in retelling what he saw that afternoon.
0: Their true intentions that day will likely never be known. While Flynn seemed as bold and fearless as ever, the years had mellowed Dana Stone somewhat. He was married, and he had dreams of settling down and having children. It's unlikely he would have agreed to get captured on purpose. Some accounts suggested that Flynn had an escape strategy
1: in mind, in case things went sour. His editor at Time magazine stated, Flynn loved the idea of going by motorcycle and was convinced that on a bike he could turn around quickly and avoid communist
0: soldiers. Unfortunately, his getaway plan wasn't as flawless as Flynn had hoped. The men's families eventually accepted that they would never come home, but they didn't stop trying to figure out what had happened. Flynn's mother, Lily Demita, spent thousands of dollars and even hired mercenaries and former soldiers to go into Cambodia and search for her son. It all came to nothing.
1: Their friends and colleagues sought answers too. Dan Sutherland, who had been near the roadblock on the day Flynn and Stone disappeared, returned to the spot years later to interview locals he found a 78-year-old man who vividly remembered the events of that
0: afternoon. The man told him he was from the village of Floc, a mile and a half north of where the two journalists were likely captured. The very same road to Floc where Flynn had told French journalists he saw a communist sentry running.
1: The old villager told Sutherland he remembered their bright red motorcycles and that one of them was tall and the other was short. They were marched into Thlok by the Viet Cong and interrogated there. Then they were taken northwest, across the fields of rice, and he didn't see the two white men again.
0: Still other researchers have interviewed eyewitnesses who claimed that after Flynn was captured, he grew sick with malaria and was brought to a field hospital in June 1971. There, doctors tried unsuccessfully to treat him. After deciding he wouldn't make it, they gave him a lethal dose of medicine to finish him off.
1: Despite the lack of firm answers, the journalist's families had Sean Flynn and Dana Stone declared legally deceased in the mid-1980s. Afterward, they turned their attention to searching for remains. Journalist Tim Page, who'd worked with both of them, went to Cambodia in 1990 to try and find answers.
0: He made a documentary about his investigation, which ended with him finding the graves of two Americans who'd been executed in a village called Baimet. Witnesses told him one of the men was tall and one was short. Based on his research and interviews, Page believed he'd found Flynn and Stone's bodies.
1: But in 2003, DNA testing proved definitively that the remains did not belong to Flynn or Stone. Instead, they were the bodies of two different Americans who'd been held by the Khmer Rouge at roughly the same time.
0: Another search, this time on behalf of Flynn's surviving half-sister Rory, took place in 2010. The investigation focused on a burial spot outside the prison camp where Flynn and Stone were believed to have been held. Locals had previously told investigators that American journalists had been executed and buried there.
1: Witnesses reported seeing a man matching Flynn's description being forced to dig his own grave. When his executioner's gun jammed, the condemned man was beaten to death with a rock. Then, hastily interred in the grave, he dug himself.
0: Using explosives and a bulldozer to search the area, the team uncovered fragments of prison clothes along with vines that were used as restraints. More importantly, they found bone fragments and teeth.
1: Experts said the teeth appeared to have dental work consistent with the American standards of the mid-20th century. Investigators were so certain they'd finally found Sean Flynn, many news organizations around the world reported that his body had, in fact, been discovered.
0: Several months later, however, the DNA results came back, and it wasn't Flynn. To this day, neither Flynn nor Stone's remains have ever been identified.
1: And that leaves us wondering, what actually happened to Flynn and Stone? For our money, it's clear that they died in a Cambodian POW camp. They were most likely murdered and buried in an unmarked
0: grave. As for how they came to be captured, it seems unlikely that Flynn and Stone dressed in fatigues to make themselves into targets. It's more likely that they were taken prisoner in spite of their efforts to escape. They knew capture was a risk. They even joked about it the day before at a cafe. But they also took precautions, like renting red motorcycles. I don't believe they'd intentionally set themselves up to be taken hostage. I
1: agree. I agree. Stone, in particular, seemed reluctant to take on the risky assignment when his wife was waiting for him back at the hotel in Phnom Penh. But maybe he was taken first, and Flynn went back to rescue him after warning off the French journalists. Then the pair were ferried into communist hands, never to be seen again.
0: Sean Flynn and Dana Stone made a reputation for themselves as fearless photojournalists who would do whatever it took to bring the truth of the Vietnam War to the public.
1: They were mavericks and cowboys, their image driven by Flynn's playboy style and Hollywood background. Stone was a perfect counterpart, a regular guy from Vermont, whose tenacity and sensibility were the perfect balance to Flynn's risk-taking
0: and fearlessness. Stone had spent much of his adulthood as a wanderer, but he'd felt a calling to document the war in Vietnam. Even after he'd grown tired of it and decided to leave, he was drawn to return. In
1: 1969, while traveling in Afghanistan, he wrote, In this town, we no longer even get the Asian editions of Time and Newsweek, and suddenly we're a long way from Vietnam. I wish it were 1967
0: again. Sean Flynn, on the other hand, was trying to outrun the shadow of his famous father. And in Vietnam, he finally found a way to do it. But it came at a high cost. Biographer
1: Jeffrey Myers wrote, Sean rejected the Hollywood life that had helped destroy his father. But he went to war as if he were still acting in a movie, fulfilling his own tragic destiny. In Hollywood... Errol could ride into an enemy roadblock and survive. In Vietnam, Sean could not.
0: Thanks again for tuning in to Gone. We'll be back next week with a short Gone Bite on Spotify and back everywhere else the week after. For more information on Sean Flynn and Dana Stone, amongst the many sources we used, we found Inherited Risk by Jeffrey Myers and Two of the Missing by Perry Dean Young, extremely helpful to our research.
1: You can find more episodes of Gone and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify.
0: Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, But now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals like Gone for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker.
1: To stream Gone on Spotify, just open the app and type Gone in the search bar.
0: And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time.
1: Just because it's gone doesn't mean it can't
0: be found. Gone was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Brendan Hawkins, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Travis Clark, and Joel Stein. This episode of Gone was written by Scott Christmas with writing assistance by Maggie Admire, and stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner.